Good morning and happy Thursday. Today is October the 12th. I'm your host, Ram Christopher. And I'm Kyle Christopher. And this is Everything's Political. We have quite the juicy lineup for you today. In international news, Secretary of State Blinken visits Israel and urges protection of Gaza civilians. And back stateside with our national news, we're going to start our national coverage on a lighter note because Lord knows it's about to get technical, like Kyle says. So here's a softball. Jada Pinkett Smith is accused of using her separation story to sell books. And now on to the technical stuff. Some CEOs want Harvard students that support Palestine blacklisted for life. Sounds a bit harsh. And on the Hill, chaos and the GOP intensifies as Scalise's speakership bid crumbles. Over in Chicago, Venezuelan migrants shot outside police station. That's terrible. What's going on, Chicago? And in local news today, another day, another tax. Homeowners to be charged for another service. Keep listening to find out whether it affects you. And New York State is poised to rethink how teachers approach literacy instruction after woeful standardized test performance statewide. And of course, we have our WTF story, but we're going to go ahead and kick it off with our international news out in Israel. Secretary of State Blinken urges protection of Gaza civilians. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has visited Israel to express strong solidarity, but also urges restraint to protect Palestinian civilians as the Israeli bombarding of Gaza continues for the sixth day. The U.S. top diplomat diplomat met Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu shortly after landing in Tel Aviv on Thursday, telling him, we're here, we're not going anywhere. Netanyahu praised Blinken's visit as a tangible example of America's unequivocal support of Israel. Blinken said that he came before journalists, not just as a Secretary of State, but also as a Jew while recounting his own family's history of surviving the Holocaust. So, Prime Minister, I understand on a personal level the harrowing echoes that Hamas massacres carry for Israeli Jews, as well as Jews everywhere, Blinken said, before calling for the protection of Gaza civilian population. We democracies distinguish ourselves from terrorists by striving for a different standard even when it is difficult and holding ourselves accountable when we fall short, Blinken said at a joint news conference with Netanyahu. Wow. Wow. Why do you think wow, Kyle? It's interesting to hear a U.S. diplomat um, side in any sort of way with uh, the Palestinian plight. Um, The message has been pretty clear as we'll see in the story coming up, that it is political suicide and it is a state offense almost to say anything against Israelis at this point in time. Um, it's kind of getting scary. And I, you know, personally, I, I want to be a neutral party in this and I, I support Israel because I understand the geopolitical importance of that of that ally. But at the same time, I am realistic about the realities on the ground for Palestinians. I think that's fair um, if you're someone who, you know, supports Israel and and all that. I think that that makes sense for you to say. I think that it's that's a reasonable um, statement from you. Um, I I would just have to say that it is. I agree that Blinken's um, response is something that I wasn't expecting from anyone in the administration, because so far all we've seen is the same. um, It seems like a puppet master echo across the whole administration where you have uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, saying over and over again, we stand with Israel, we stand with Israel, regardless of, you know, them now being there uh, in bombing the Gaza for six days straight. And after these people have been going without electricity, water and food for, you know, nearly a week now. Um, it, 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 it's almost sickening to me, um, 
to believe that I ever worked to get Biden or Kamala Harris into office because this is something that I would have more so expected from the Trump administration and not from an administration who continues to pretend to be so progressive. Um, I get it. You have an ally there. But to go uh, with your ally blindly and everything that they say, say or not even looking at pictures and then making statements and accusations of beheading, beheadings of children, and then, then later to find out you never saw it, you just trust the ally that much. Um, do you trust the ally when they also said they didn't have any warning of the attacks because Egypt and other, um, you know, it's come out that in fact Netanyahu was given warning, you know. So it, it just it, it's it's quite crazy that we have to blindly, um, you know, trust our allies because I think that in order to be a good leader around the world and to have allies, we should also hold allies accountable and making sure that they are not committing war crimes against innocent civilians. Yes, the Hamas attacks were terrible. Um, but at the same time, is it okay to kill thousands, if not millions of people and to continue to kill innocent little children with bombs? Because that is what Israel is doing. Yeah, I, I have to agree on that point. The killing of innocents is, you know, a non-starter for me, regardless of which side and you know, I condemn Hamas for their actions and I condemn Israel for their actions that are currently been going on for the last six days because there's a clear separation between Hamas and the Palestinian people. Um, you know, if it's a terror network, it shouldn't be a war. It should be more of a, a operation where you root out the terrorists versus bombing an entire population of people. That's just how those things go. But, you know, to equate, it, it, it seems very questionable to equate Hamas to Palestine and then go after Palestine um, just doesn't rub me right. And there have been, you know, several instances of, you know, the, the exactly what you were leaning on um, that, that we were talking about earlier where there seems to be this forced acceptance of the narrative. And if you don't accept it, it's, it's and, you know, the funny thing is, is that so many of, you know, the people that I, I interact with on Twitter and in New York are very much questioning of that same sort of rhetoric when it comes from the left. So to see them try to apply it to me is very, you know, is questionable. And I, I recognize it because we talk about it all the time. Yeah. Cause you know, communism isn't good and fascism isn't either. And in this case, we're seeing fascism work and in, 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 in a way that is, I think it, it gets to be a, a, a super infringement on the Americans, uh, all Americans' ability to, uh, and their freedom of speech. Because if, you know, we're, this is, we're getting into territory where if we say something, we notice something, if you question, you, you're allowed to question. You're, you're allowed to question. You're, that, it's not terroristic to question. It's terroristic of governments to say that because a person questions them, that is some, especially because we're democracies, as Blinken said. We're, we're living in a democracy, not an authoritarian government. So why is it wrong for us to also care about the deaths of the Palestinians? Because those people are people, <laughs> and there's babies there. Surely, and that's the, I guess that, that leads me to the point of uh, saying, you know, one of the ways that I definitely see this is when they show us the videos and they, and they ask us to make an immediate snap judgment on a video clip that's 20 seconds long, a minute and 30 seconds long, with no actual context other than such and such are trying to kill us, um, or these animals are trying to do this to us, and then later on more video comes out, and it's not necessarily exactly as it was pitched. So after seeing that, I you know it makes it hard to make a rush to judgment on future videos, and and that's you know a right that we reserve as American citizens. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, well, I guess just to, I guess just to play devil's advocate, but it's not really devil's advocate. It's just an honest question. How long is the rest of the world, and specifically in this instance, how long are the Palestinian people going to be put in the state as the whipping boy and the as the uh, proxy for Adolf Hitler? Because they weren't the ones responsible for the Holocaust. Yet here we are in this day and age living through a genocide at the hands of the Israeli state 
that is being inflicted on to the Palestinian people. And it's just utterly, utterly terrifying and utterly disgusting to think that if a nation has an issue with terrorists, they then, in fact, can go and bomb millions of people. It was a mistake when we did it against Iraq, and it's a mistake that when Israel was doing it against the people in Gaza. Yeah, I have to agree. And, um, you know, the big question for me, or another point, rather, is that, you know, I've seen several Jewish people refer to this as a genocide against the Israeli people when there's only been one or two successful attacks in this whole time. And, you know, the hyperbole becomes more and more apparent as more and more information comes out. And you have to question what's going on and what, where this, where this is leading. And I think we already have uncovered the U S motives as far as kickstarting the economy and keeping Biden in office um, and you saw the backup from Barack Obama on this issue. And I, I, you know, again, let me reiterate, like, I want to stand with Israel, but I have questions. Yeah, I have a lot of questions, but unlike you, I can't see myself standing with Israel in this moment. I think it's terrible that the people lost their lives. They lost their lives unnecessarily, but I really just don't believe that the ta- the attacks were at all not warned against and I also believe that Netanyahu allowed those innocent civilians. So if they want to take up a war, they might want to look at their fearless le- leader and Bibi because he he had something to right. do and with Right, and there was obvious uh, motivation for him as well to ignore those attacks exactly. because his, uh, you know, political political career was under attack. His crimes and, uh, are under a microscope. Right, his, mic- facing, his life is under yeah, a microscope and, and the actions that he had against... He's taken bribes. ...against the Supreme Court in uh, Israel were under... And he's know, being protested against. Uh, when uh, I was there, uh, they, yeah, were they, they, they were him. They were protesting him. And then to add to that, they uh, not only were they protesting him, but now they have like some kind of emergency resolution between the two parties in Israel... Where they're now agreeing to like wait to yes, make the decision exactly, exactly. on Netanyahu until after the war. It's so, a great stall tactic for so him. I mean, it, it works a lot. A very, there are two people that are very much benefiting from this, regardless of how you want to look at it. And that's the U.S. president, and that's you know the the leader of Israel. That it's that simple. And those those two things leave me questioning because, granted, you know I stand for the United States and. I, I like I said before, I want to stand for Israel, but at the same time, it's too coincidental for me not to question and find my answers until to make to get to that decision. Yeah, that's fair. So moving on over, we're gonna lighten up the mood a little bit, and <laughs> we're gonna get into someone that I really respect. I mean, I guess his marriage, it, Will Smith. I really like the guy's really good actor. Um, and you know, everybody knows about the slap heard around the world, but we're going to be talking about his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Smith, <laughs> Jada Pinkett Smith, um, and her, uh, new book that's out. And, uh, she was recently on the view, right? Yes. You can take it away. The view co-host accuses Jada Pinkett Smith of talking about Will Smith's separation to sell books. The View co-host Anna Navarro has accused Jada Pinkett Smith of revealing her separation from husband Will Smith to sell books. On Wednesday's episode of the ABC talk show, Navarro and her fellow co-hosts discussed Pinkett Smith's bombshell announcement in an interview with Today's Show host Hoda Kotb. Pinkett Smith says she and Smith have been separated since 2016, however they don't plan to divorce. Much like De Blasio and his wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> what I what do I know? So what do why do I know so much about these people's marriage? Navarro said on Wednesday's edition of the View. Really, I kind of feel like I know more about their marriage than I know about my own damn marriage. Said Navarro, <laughs> I don't need to know all this. You know what? I just want to watch reruns of Fresh Prince of Bel Air and Bad Boys. Just leave this out of my head. Navarro continued. Listen. I think she's having a relationship with her bank account because every time she needs to increase her ratings of the red table, every time she needs to sell books, she drops these bombshells. I find it unseemly. Be careful of anybody who pretends to have a perfect marriage. A spokesperson for Pink and Smith did not immediately respond to Insider's request for comment. Yeah, I have to agree with Anna here. And um, I, I mean, I was 
one of the people online yesterday that was really bothering my spirits and my soul was just that. It was her, Jada Pinkett Smith. So when this story came Why? out. Okay, first off, this sto- the story came out that she was talking about Chris Rock asked her out back in 2016 after, I guess, rumors of uh, divorce or something like that. And I read through the little article. It was very short. And I just was like, oh, my God, why am I wasting my time on this mindless drivel at this moment in time? But it's like I needed a break from all the heaviness of the day. So here I am looking at her stuff. And in it, you know, it was just like kind of the run of the mill thing where she was like, no, we weren't. We're not. Or whenever it was. I don't know if it was 2016. I believe it was 2016 from the article. They probably printed a retraction so she can keep her lies straight. But um, it was something about, you know, her turning him down because he asked her out. And it's just like, why is this still going on? Are you not done embarrassing Will enough already? Like, the first thing of it, you have dirty laundry. Do you have to air it to the public? Like, I was fine believing that they were a perfect marriage. I wanted that for them. And for her to now, like, you know, she said before that they've never, you know, been divorced. They hadn't separated. They've always been together. And she had her entanglements. And now here we are. They've been living separate. So is that like her way of trying to like fix the embarrassment? Because at this point, everybody had almost forgot and we were still like getting back cool with Will. She just like continues to like rub egg in his face. And I just feel real bad for the guy. Yeah, I feel super bad for Will Smith, especially after hearing that whole how she's still obsessed about Tupac kind of stuff. And that oh, just yeah, is really just tough. Crazy. Um, as far as this stuff goes, I mean. It's pretty clear. Like, when was the last movie that you saw Jada Pinkett Smith in? And I think it was, like, something, one of the Matrixes or something. I don't know. So, just, like, you know, Will has no... Batman show, actually. Will has no problem getting work in Hollywood. Jada Pinkett, not so much. Yeah. And to go on your point, that's that's a very fair point. And this is one of the things that I commented, because I was being really mean yesterday on the internet... And she had posted something where she was like specifically just standing with Israel. And I was just, I had to comment and I was like, oh, okay, I got it. You have a book coming out. So you need to like get back on your knees so you can like get in good with Hollywood um, to try to save your, your taint career because you've obviously pissed off, you know, Israel. Um, And um, we get it. So, you know, that's literally what she's doing. So she's, you know, she's making those comments and I just have to wonder, like, you care so much about Tupac. What would Tupac think about it? Because that was really what I asked her. What would Tupac think about your comments and how you're you're going on? Because she turned off her comments under that um, message particularly. Um, And I know why she did it because it was clearly she was about to get dragged for it because it's like completely a 180 from what she normally stands for. But if you're trying to sell a book, you might want to be on the right side of Israel like so many other people who are trying to run for office. Yeah, that's uh, some hot fire right there. I guess uh, we're going to go jump right back into the hot fire. Harvard University released the names of students whose organization signed onto a letter blaming solely Israel for the deadly attacks by Hamas. The CEO wants the students blacklisted, but some of those students have since distanced themselves from the letter. One should not be able to hide behind a corporate shield when issuing statements supporting the actions of terrorists, Ackman said in a post on X, formerly known as Twitter. If the members support the letter, the names of the signatories should be made public so their views are publicly known, Ackman said. The CEO of Pershing Square Capital Management said he wanted to ensure his company and others Don't inadvertently hire any students belonging to Harvard groups that signed the letter. Following a backlash to the statement, some students' groups have since withdrawn their endorsements. Multiple other business leaders, including the CEOs of shopping club FabFitFun, health tech startup EasyHealth, Dovehill Capital Management, supported the call from Ackman to name the students. I would like to know, so I never hired, so I never, so I'd like to know, so I know never to hire these people, Jonathan Newman, CEO of the restaurant chain Sweetgreen, said on X. Neither Newman or Ackman responded to requests for comment. Others warned that naming students whose group backed the statement could put the students in harm's way and did not account for the differences of opinions within student groups. Larry Summers, a famed economist who on Monday drew attention to the morally unconscionable 
Harvard student statement is now preaching caution. I yield to no one in my revulsion at the statement apparently made on behalf of 30 plus Harvard student group. Summers said on Wednesday afternoon post on X, but please everybody take a deep breath. Many in these groups never saw the statement before it went out. In some cases, those approving did not understand exactly what they are approving. Summers, the former president of Harvard and U.S. Treasury, Treasury Secretary added that probably some were naive and foolish. This is not a time where it's constructive to vilify individuals, and I'm sorry that this is happening, Summers said. Harvard professor and legal scholar Lawrence Tribe told CNN Wednesday he initially agreed with Ackman, but on reflection decided not to join the push to publicize their names. Any number of students who got caught up in this misguided campaign probably didn't even know where there was a statement. Others, no doubt, didn't focus on, much less understand what they were signing. Tribe said in an email, Naive and stupid as they may have been, I now think it would be an overreaction to penalize them permanently by publishing their names and implying that they actually endorsed what the terrorists did to innocent Israelis. Right. I mean, I, I think that the former Harvard professor um, makes a valid point. I mean, it, it seems a lot of it seems super aggressive to somehow uh, permanently blacklist youth who are like already, you know, attending a major university. Obviously, they've made the right steps in life to get there. And now we're going to punish them for maybe a momentary, um, I don't know, momentary error in, in judgment. And it's not even like they did anything. It's like they literally exercised their freedom of speech. Um, and <laughs> I think that it's like... it. it Maybe they were thinking they were standing with Palestine in this situation because they also understand if anybody's read a textbook or seen anything, like they know what actually happens, the apartheid that's happening in Israel. And so maybe those kids were trying to, you know, speak to that part of things instead of, you know, you know, the, the, the actions of Hamas which would be what retaliation against oppression, which is terroristic because they're not a state. But in the same breath, Israel is able to carry out bombs on innocent civilians who are not all Hamas. But no one's signing a petition against that because if you do, you get blacklisted, right? Right. And I'd have to agree with you. Um, This is really scary to me. Um, And... I, did, I guess this report didn't add in the fact that there's already, uh, a, I guess, a sign a truck that has, you know, those mobile sign trucks that they're already driving that around Harvard with some of the faces and names of some of the students that led these uh, petitions. And that's really scary because you don't know who's going to retaliate against them. Um, and, you know, you don't want to be a party to that. That's definitely not something that, that would be terrorism to 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 if you pushed for their names to be released and these kids get kidnapped or something happens to them, they are American citizens. And you are asking for these American citizens for the demise of them, ultimately. I'm sorry to cut you in. Cut in there. Go ahead. Yeah. And so there's definitely two things that come to mind um, when, when I think of this. And the first is obviously the Jewish myth, right, about business and Jewish myths. And this is one of those things where if you – go through with this, it kind of gives some credence to that myth if it's so much so that you can't say a word about Israel and now you get blacklisted uh, from business in a whole. That kind of speaks to that myth. And I don't think anyone wants to be in the business of, you know, affirming stereotypes. Um, being a black man myself, I know I, I hate stereotypes and I, I always strive to do, you know, go beyond them and to not fall into those stereotypes and almost be averse to certain things because of said stereotypes. So it's one of those things that it's very, it's, it's very funny to watch at this point in time. The other point, um, which, you know, speaks to exactly what you're saying, uh, the liability that may be the, I don't necessarily believe it's a terroristic act on summers on summers. I'm not summers, but Ackman's point, but I do believe that there's, there, there's definitely a, there's a crime being committed. Um, you know, incitement, the, incitement and stuff and something to, to that effect. Um, and that's not, it's not necessarily what you want to do. And it further goes down that road of, of, you know, keeping those myths going that, you know, certain people have control over the country that we don't know about. So 
I think that it, a smarter move is to try to try for education and also to be understand that you know college is the exact same place and this goes back to what I was talking about where you know there's so many people in the education space that are so critical of you know fascism and so critical well well critical of, of fascism but also on the other side where I'm usually coming from we're critical of communism and and, and being critical of these authoritarian type things authoritarian type actions it's ironic that this is what we're resorting to because people express a different opinion on a hot button issue. And I think that everyone, regardless of which side you're coming from, should be able to express your opinion, um, especially in a, an issue that's coming out in real time. And it's not that you should be held to that opinion, but rather, A, you either learn something new when, when the official report comes out, whether or not that official report would be biased or not, or B... You know, you, 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 your thoughts evolve over time and it may not be as strong as it was before, but you still feel the same way with less vitriol or less energy because obviously time passes and time heals all, heals all wounds to use that cliche. Yeah, I think that's very well put, put almost poetic. Um, I, you know, I think that it's just, I, I, I always, anytime we get into territory where we're, <coughs> constantly forcing people to think one way or say one thing or have to agree with one group of people it's not American and I don't want to be a part of it so that's what I have to say about it I think that you know everyone's losing because of what's happening in that region right now and it's unfair to only be focused on one group of people um, especially when those attacks happen but these other these other attacks are ongoing and america isn't really doing anything to aid those people and those people are going without water electricity and food while being bombed so we're gonna move on over to chaos and house gop intensifies with scalise's speakership bid in peril see i've not been paying attention i thought the guy had the vote already the House Republican Party is sliding even deeper into disarray as it feuds over its next speaker. Apparently oblivious to the picture of U.S. government dysfunction, it is sending at the moment of worsening global crisis. GOP lawmakers did select Steve Scalise as their nominee for the job that is second in line of presidential succession on Wednesday. But by nightfall, it was clear the Louisiana Republican and current majority leader was struggling to find the votes he needs to secure the gavel during a floor vote. While party leaders still hope to hold a vote on the speakership in the full chamber on Thursday, senior Republicans were also considering what to do should Scalise lack the support to win the job. Steve is nowhere near 217, said one Republican member, referring to the tally Scalise would need on the floor to become speaker. But a number of GOP sources also doubt that Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, the runner-up to Scalise in Wednesday's closed-door election, can unite the party and claim the top job either. That could create an opening for a compromise candidate, whoever that may be, to emerge. The worsening debacle in the House follows the ouster of former Speaker Kevin McCarthy last week by eight Republicans voting with Democrats. In theory, Scalise is on the cusp of becoming the most powerful Republican in Washington. In reality... Even if he can somehow win the votes he needs, he risks neutering his potential House speakership before it gets started with concessions to extremists needed to win the gavel. Jeez, sounds like a bit of a pickle. Um, do you think that um, it might may end up being Trump still? I think that Trump might be the compromise because I think that uh, you can't say no. And I, I, don't, I didn't think of that before, but as you say, yeah, I, I can't say no because... I don't see that there are many people that can say no to Trump and uh, they, you know, it kind of be interesting going into 2024, whether or not, you know, how they feel about Trump, you know, becomes the, the referendum that selects the next speaker. Um, however, what I was going to say uh, before you got to that, you asked me that quick question was, you know, it's really bad because they said that Scalise won that vote with 113. Uh, 113 uh, total votes out of, I guess it was, they have 217, 218 members. Yeah. So that's insane. And it's really bad and we need something done now. And unfortunately, it's 
you know, we're here because of Matt Gates and the Democrats. <laughs> Thank you, Democrats. And Matt Gates. And Matt Gates. <laughs> and the others. Nancy Mace wore a scarlet letter uh, the other day. I think it was yesterday. She wore a big A on her T-shirt under a blazer because she read the scarlet letter. Apparently not. Um, to because she feels that she's taking too much blame for, um, you know, being one of the eight that voted against uh, McCarthy. It just shows you how far uh, intelligence has fallen. And just to top that off, uh, within the U.S. Uh, House, uh, Fetterman was on. Um, what was it? What's that guy's name? Jeez, I can't remember his name. The Fallon? D- no, Daily Show former host with the glasses. Uh, not not Stewart. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He was. A, uh, not, and it's not John Oliver. It's the other one. I understand, but go ahead. He has the American American Dream ice cream. Stephen Colbert. Yeah. So okay. Steve, he was on Col. She he was on Colbert yesterday, and his, uh, you know, copyrighted, registered trademark black hoodie. Really. Set, talking about the the bar for talent and for intelligence and and Congress has fallen really low. And meanwhile, this is a guy that lived with his parents up until age 40. And he's a senator. And he <laughs> never had a job other than, you know, and then he lies about the fact that he was going to take over his dad's business when his older brother had already done that. So, and he's like, you know, the bar has fallen so low. It's just like, it's a, a parody of itself. The, the extremes of both parties have dragged us down dramatically. And it's also lowered the bar for others. And it, we're in a terrible spot right now as a, a nation. Yeah, I, you know, and usually I'm on, I agree with you on the, the extremes of both parties dragging us down. At this point, though, I don't even know if the middle of the Democratic Party is any good because <laughs> everything that they stood for, they threw it out the window so they could get, never mind. We're going to continue on. Uh, we're going to, let's see, what are we, what's our next story? What's up? We're going to the Windy City, back to the cold place. Oh, this is sad, actually. Why don't you go ahead? Man charged with shooting migrants outside police station. Police said Anthony Evans, 25, opened fire at the Grand Crossing station Saturday, injuring two migrants, including a woman holding her young son. Kind of remind you of what's happening in Palestine. Um, let's see. Around 3.40 p.m. Saturday, a person shot a 28-year-old woman and a 24-year-old man outside the police station in the 7100 block of South Cottage Grove Avenue, police said. The shooter fled and soon struck a police officer's vehicle, causing more injuries, police said. Anthony Evans, 20, 25, was arrested at the scene and charged with eight felony de- counts including two for aggregated aggravated battery and two for aggravated DUI police said oh he was drunk a video of the incident shows a gunman firing shots at migrants on the sidewalk many with their tents pitched outside the police station according to the according to the Chicago Sun-Times Romero 28 an asylum seeker from Venezuela told Telemundo Chicago she was wounded in the buttocks while holding her young son, she had only been in Chicago for a week, she said. Romero said she had been standing outside the police station with her son in her arms when the per- person pulled up in a Jeep and started firing shots, according to the Chicago Sun-Times. I mean, it's kind of, um, it's kind of, again, Corey Johnson's, is his name Corey Johnson? What's his name? It's not Corey Johnson, because we always think of that other guy. Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson's, uh... And I'm sorry for that, for our listeners outside of New York City. Corey Johnson was a politician in New York that was Speaker of the Council for a brief bit there, I think. And uh, we're now talking about the mayor of Chicago, Johnson. And Mayor Johnson, it's just a lack of foresight. I mean, they decided that they were going to house these migrants in police stations. And as it got cold... They kicked them out to outside the, the station. So they literally camp outside the police stations. I can see that being a two-pronged problem. Yeah. One, if there's an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation where the police have to leave, they're going to have to run through a tent city to get to their cars. Two, it's Chicago in October. It's about to be 50 degrees as a high with the lows in the, in the mid-40s for the next five days coming with rain all day. These people are from where? Venezuela, South America, Central America. Flu season. It's flu season. It's picking up. They're going to get really sick. And they're going to be right in front of the police station getting the police officers sick. Yeah, it's a it's a terrible ordeal. And it's 
it's terrible. You have this guy here shooting at the police station and injuring a, a migrant, a mother no less. Um, it's, I, I mean, I, it just it seems like... It speaks to all the problems, right? It speaks to a lot of the problems. Yeah, exactly. No, he's not afraid to shoot at the police, in or around the police station because it's okay. We, you know, it's some sort of reparation that you can do whatever you want if you're a young black man and only further ruin our community, right? Was he black? I believe so. Oh, I didn't see that anywhere. So I didn't, I wasn't assuming he was black. His name is pretty ambiguous, but more than, I mean, they, I don't know. Either way, it, it, it's sad. It's, uh, I, and then he's intoxicated on top of that, but it does go to speak to how the um, progressives or even in this situation, liberals have ruined um, black America um, to some extent, I'll have to say, because they've, you know, if we don't follow their tagline exactly verbatim with their bullet points, um, then we're sellouts. But then, you know, when you go and do it, you know, you're going to pay the price because this is a crime. And, you know, at the same time, they're, they're anti-gun. Here you are, you're shooting, and now you're shooting someone whiter than you um, who is a migrant, and it sucks because she shouldn't have been shot. She's a mother. I hate that for any mother. Um, but again, you shot a migrant at a police station. I don't know if that was his intended target. It could have been a police. You, you never know, right? Yeah, you definitely never know with uh, the way. Well, who would think that the migrants would be at the police station anyway? Why would they have them there? That's where they've been housing them in Chicago. But they were initially li- living inside of the police. Each like individual police station was serving as like a mini camp, and then they kicked them out. And you know the the tent city thing is stalling out because that just looks plain retarded. So now they've given them personal tents, which is even crazier than a mega tent because at least a mega tent could get a little bit warm. But granted, you know, like a wind can knock it over, or you know, a hailstorm could really do some damage. But now they're in like normal tents, like outside of the police station. So it's like, this is insanity. This seems like a liability for the police. Do they just like hate the police entirely in Chicago? Because like, why would you, why would you have them, you know, have to be, you know, I don't like the overseers. They're not immigration. They're not, this is, this is a city service. They should be handling the intake of the migrants. It shouldn't have to be, they already have a job to do. Right? right, like they can't be there. You know, that just seems crazy. Cause like, what would happen if then the police station becomes overrun or something like that? You, you don't. I mean, we have no leadership in this country. It's just absolutely appalling. I think we do have some leaders, but where? I, I think. Give me do. one. Just give me an example. I think there's a. I think <laughs> there's a guy in Queens that we're going to talk about um, in, in the episode tomorrow. Um, there are a couple people that I definitely look at, and I think that they have some sort of. Uh, ideas and they have and they and they you have to fully you know sign the dotted line as far as committing to a cause that might not necessarily be a cause that would be beneficial for their constituents and for their and and would jibe with their with their values that they're they stated they have um at any rate let's jump over to the local news because chicago is a, a mess all right New York City homeowners to be charged for a new official trash can. All right, Kyle, go ahead and take it away. Okay, all right. In that case, I'll take it away. New York City will soon require that the vast majority of household garbage be placed on the curb in official vendor supply trash cans, which will cost homeowners at least $45 a pop. Mayor Eric Adams announced on Wednesday, starting next fall, residents of buildings with fewer than 10 apartments, about 95% of the city's housing stock, will be required to put out their garbage in bins with secured lids. And by the summer of 2026, new rules will mandate the owners of those buildings to buy an official trash can from a vendor selected by the sanitation department, which can cost between $45 and $80, depending on their size. The cans will be designed to be compatible with mechanical tippers on city sanitation trucks. Hundreds of the city sanitation trucks must be replaced or retrofitted so that they can lift the new bins according to sanitation officials. I I guess I'm at a loss for words at this point. Basically, they're charging us a tax to subtract union jobs because if we're automating... 
the tipper, right? And so they put these garbage cans in. That means somebody's going to lose their job or there's going to be more efficiency. And not only that, they haven't discussed how they would actually work it out with the homeowners. Um, I don't know what kind of tipper they're going to use. If it's a, a, a grabber, if it's a grabber, then we're going to have a major problem. If it's a, the roll-up tipper, you know, and I guess I'm getting very technical on this, but it's one of those things where, I don't know, it, it just seems like a harebrained plan, and then you add in the price of 45 to $80 for a product that normally costs $145, $200, dollars with the seal, the ones that seal up. Um, if you just search any site, Amazon, you know, look for a 96-gallon garbage bin with the, with the lock, and you'll find prices going from 145 and above. So I don't, I've never heard of any city organization, any city agency getting a discount rate from anyone. What do you think right now, Ram? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, perhaps they are going to cut you a break there with the $45 or $80 that you're spending. Um, maybe this is just a gift to New Yorkers for enduring so much ridiculousness for the last few or last few years of transition and everything else um i don't know just trying to make a uh, make light of it um i think that you know like what you were talking about uh the loss of jobs is really um a serious portion that we should be looking at on this in this matter particularly um because you know when it comes to automation i'm not a fan of it (coughs) um and although I normally err on the side of, you know, saying good things about Eric Adams, I think it's a, a ball drop uh, with this move. Um, you know, we're going to combat rats. Okay, cool. Um, one of the things that they had done was take away the the ability of retail to stop stack up those large trash bags that you see in the city where they're overflowing and making those mounds of trash bags and requiring that they have a trash can. That's cool. Um, but now I, I know that you, you mentioned it. I never really paid attention to taking out the trash, um, in a private at, at the house. Anyway, I mean, I've taken out trash, um, living in an apartment, which I know a lot of people are familiar with. Usually if you live in an apartment, they have like a bunch of the trash bins and you don't really have to concern yourself so much. You have the recyclables, you put your stuff in the recyclable bin, you put the, your stuff in the trash bin and then someone is, you know, does the magic work of picking it all up. And, you know, you pay for that within your rent usually. Um, but when you live in a house, um, you were the magic man because you would be the one that would take it out to the curb. So I have no idea, but you mentioned something about it becoming another issue. There's another issue that's involved in this. So yeah, the jobs is definitely top of the list because why do we need to lose more good paying jobs? Because we know the sanitation industry industry pays very well. There's good pensions, good benefits. And, you know, men are making sometimes six figure salaries. Um, And it's also a good industry because a lot of people who maybe have, been formerly incarcerated or you know turned their lives around this is a good way for them to be able to get back into it with private carters and such and whatever but you know like with the city it's a good it's a good direction when we because we don't have the box as far as checking that as well so it's a good it's a good industry for for men of all like colors and in and across and it's a good it, good way to provide for your family but the other part of it that you you mentioned was that there's a gonna be a lull in parking spots that are available, right? Right. Yeah. I, I didn't. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's so, but I have seen some of the pictures, and if it is as pictured, where they have the tipper that grabs the the garbage bin off those curb, there's a major problem, right? Um, half of the housing stock in the city is single family detached homes, and I know a lot of people have a hard time believing that, but if you drive around Brooklyn, you drive around Queens, you drive around Staten Island, you drive around Northern Bronx, you get to see that outside of those downtown areas and the brownstone areas, there's a lot of land that's occupied by single family homes. Uh, they might not look like your typical single family homes. They kind of are pretty, most of them are pretty small, but they're single family homes with driveways nonetheless. And the issue is, is that in between those driveways, between three to 
a single car to, to three cars park normally with the way uh, the properties are cut. So you have three cars in a driveway, three cars in a driveway, or in a smaller uh, on a block with smaller houses, car driveway, car driveway, car driveway. Now, where we put our garbage bins is usually right next to that car that's parked, and the garbage bin will go up onto the pavement and roll your garbage bin down your driveway uh, ramp and throw it in the garbage. So if we have the grabber, that means a lot of parking spaces are gone. And in those blocks that have smaller homes, that could be that could mean all of the gar- the parking spaces are gone. And I know that a lot of people um, that may listen to this show may not be in tune with it. And we, I know that the woman that proposed this plan is definitely not in tune with it because she lived that life, that, that building life where she was ver- she's very well-to-do. Jessica Tisch, the commissioner of sanitation, and she's a lifelong bureaucrat. She has no training in sanitation, has no idea how things are done as far as on the road. And that's her dad's a billionaire though. Right? Her dad's a billionaire. Her family is her family. They're billionaires. And to think that this is the idea that we come up with that cuts jobs. Um, even if it is the other type of, of, of uh, tipper where you roll it up to the back of the truck and it tips it in. Obviously if the garbage men don't have to continue lifting and lifting and lifting, it'd be one less person per crew. So right. You won't have three, you'll have two and even, and that two can do far more jobs than the average uh, garbage man. Cause there's not, there's only so much a person can lift in a given day, but if you only got to roll them up and then they get picked up, that still is. So then the parking doesn't become a problem if you have that other type of tipper, but at the end of the day, we're still cutting jobs no matter what. Right. And we could potentially lose parking and the last part of it is, you know, it, or I guess the last part for the conclude is it really speaks to the fact that some of these offices need people that have experience in that branch, in that agency to become commissioner. I just, you know, I don't want somebody to be police commissioner that never walked a day of the beat or at least never drove a squad car. I don't want somebody to be a firefighter, a fire commissioner if they've never fought a fire. It's just one of those things I think that you need to have had some sort of experience on the job. She never was a part of sanitation. No, she she was a rich Harris. She worked uh, in several positions for the NYPD. Um, and then she moved on to some sort of uh, data and information uh, job within uh, de Blasio's administration. And now she's the she's the new uh, Garcia. Yeah. Right. And the Gar- same story as Garcia, but a lot more money. Okay. So this is just basically so she can get a bid for mayor. Her her yeah. next move will probably be running for mayor. All right. <laughs> we got it. Um, well, I think that it's kind of ridiculous, especially with the loss of jobs. And I think that it also sucks because this is also going to mean more people getting uh, ticketed because of their cars possibly being in the way of those automated machines picking up the trash when it could have just went to a simple, you know, could the simple solution was keep the jobs going, keep the pensions going. You've already lost a lot, enough money for, of the people of New York. Um, so why not keep the people employed? They, they, you know, like a lot of them saw, you know, they, they were, they were cut off during the COVID vaccine situations. And now here we are taking another ax again, even though we don't mention it. But. And, and I, I, I'm ashamed at Eric Adams on this one, and I, I'm not one to speak out against Eric Adams. I really admire the man. I had a meeting with him in uh, 2019 um, where I met him at, uh, I think it was, uh, what, whose barbecue was that? Oh, gosh, I can't remember. the, the it, it was a state assemblyman's barbecue uh, over in Queens, Wepner. I met him at the Wepner barbecue, and he's a— Weprin. Weprin, sorry. David Weprin, his barbecue, and— it's a shame because the idea that we've come to this solution, that we lose jobs, and not only do we lose jobs, we we have to pay for losing those jobs because we have to pay for those garbage bins, a price that I don't believe that they can get. And it just leaves a really bad taste in my mouth. Maybe she's going to donate them since she's an heiress. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Um, and the last part about it... I. Eric Adams is supposed to be the mayor of PR and the mayor of yes. And the idea that, you know, as I was saying earlier, when we started half of the city housing is single family homes. And the vast majority of our neighborhoods that are single family home dominant do not have rat problems. Did you ever see a rat on our block? No, I never did. 
No, I never did. Um, I used to see them inside of the city specifically. You'll see them in the more densely populated, super urban feeling parts. You might see them in Williamsburg where, where there's a lot of people out, a lot more businesses. Restaurants. Like restaurants, yeah. It's a lot. It's You see it more so in Manhattan than you do in, in the outer boroughs. Well, especially not in Brooklyn as much. Um, but if you do see it, it's not definitely not in Ditmas Park. Yeah. The average block has 50 to 70 people living, 20 houses on a block. Um, the garbage goes out. It's out on the curb for a day, and they're not rats. We don't even put covers on our garbage bins. They don't even get if they if our garbage is get opened and they like the it's a raccoon. Get, it's a raccoon, thousand percent raccoon. Like, just no doubt about it. If it's a small hole, it's a squirrel. Um, but the squirrels don't really go after the garbage. They're like if you have a specific thing in there, like some nuts or something that you're throwing out, maybe they'll go after that. But hundred percent raccoon. So. The idea that like you're making it seem as if New York on a whole is infested with rats is terrible PR. That's true. I think that 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 is very accurate. And maybe these should be, you know, uh, doled out more so to the restaurants. But again, restaurants use private carters. So that might, too, be one of the reasons why they're going about it in the way that they are. So they can still, you know, make a profit off of this this push. It's terrible, and I mean, yeah, we need people that actually know what's going on and aren't afraid to tell the truth and aren't necessarily looking to become enriched either by moving up in their career or making a profit from some sort of public work. It's, it's terrible. Actually do the job that you're there for. And I think that one, one last part is I, I just want to say is like shout out to the private carters because you keep the city honest, um, and um, I think you do a better job overall. No offense, but... <laughs> Keep doing what you do. I don't remember what the uh, what the call name is. Uh, I, I know you know there's the bravest, the finest, and I forgot. But um, I think they're the strongest. Our our, our sanitation uh, men and women and and I, and, I lo- and, I, and 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 kudos to you all too that work for the city. I, I love you guys and keep picking up my trash. Keep please. Picking up trash. <laughs> I, I meant nothing against you when I just was giving shout outs to the private carters, but also the the city carters. I mean, you you guys doing a phenomenal job and you keep this. The neighborhood's clean. All right. I hope you keep your job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hope, I, I'm crossing my fingers. I, I'm not one that's against automation, but I know what this automation means and how it could change our neighborhoods, and I'm not for it when it comes to public works. I'm against it for that because that those are really decent jobs, and these are essential jobs, so I'm really against it. So talking about the garbage and the mess in New York, hundreds of NYC elementary schools used a teacher's college reading curriculum Banks said has not worked. Shortly after taking office, school chancellor David Banks took aim at one of the most popular reading programs in New York City public schools, one that had long been embraced by his predecessors. The curriculum created by Lucy Calkins at Columbia's Teacher College has not worked, he declared. There's a very different approach that we're going to be looking to take. Banks, along with Mayor Eric Adams, has vowed to reshape the way elementary school teach children to read. Backed by a growing chorus of literacy experts, city officials argue the teacher's college approach hinges too heavily on independent reading without enough explicit instruction on the relationship between sounds and letters, known as phonics, leaving many students floundering. Data obtained by the city and Chalkbeat reveal for the first time how deeply enmeshed the curriculum has become in classrooms serving the city's youngest students and how difficult it could be to unwind. Hmm. What do you make of it all? I think that, you know, this is one of those things where I have to say kudos to Eric Adams, you know, and take a turn in, 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 um, in, in the narrative that's going on in our show today. Um, I think it's a, it's nice that he's there, but I think it's a little bit too late because this is the second year in a row that we've come up with really poor scores nationwide on our standardized test. But I'm glad that he's making a choice to make a change. Um, it speaks a lot to the fact that the idea that people learn at their own speed and people learn in different ways doesn't really add up to people learning anything at all unless they're really motivated to want to read in a proper way or want to do math in a proper way and went and left to your own devices and telling people that two plus two is equal to five if you want it to be. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, 
the I'm not really familiar with the uh, the the Lucy Calkins method at all. Um, yeah, I'm more familiar with some of the different curriculum they were pushing out around math and um, uh, mo- mostly math and science, uh, particularly. But um, I'm not really sure how this changes. Well, let me read a little example of it for you. At the heart of the teacher's college method is the idea that children can learn. Children, children's. Sorry, I'm not Mike Tyson. Children can learn to read by being exposed to literature and having plenty of time to practice independently. Teachers typically deliver about 10 minutes or less of a mini lesson, such as how to find a text's main idea. They then send students to fan out, often curled on the classroom rug, to choose books at their own reading level. Educators shuttle between children to check their progress, either individually or in small groups. A significant chunk of students, particularly those who have support for reading at home, have no trouble learning to read under the teacher's college model. And multiple educators said they appreciated that the program treats students as thinkers who should be encouraged to develop a love of literature. Okay. But, so, but research re- shows that reading is generally not a natural process that children can pick up independently. Yeah, I was going to say I don't think that it's natural at all. Um, I think that this is really completely different from when I was you know, coming up and becoming a reader. I mean, I think... Same here. I think back in the day, like we are, we always used a phonics uh, situation as a phonic me- a phonics method, or like the group reading. It wasn't something where you just do at your own leisure. Um, that was additional, like once we've already gotten down the basics and the fundamentals of reading. But you know, curled up on the rug wasn't really what it was. We would have like reading groups where we'd have to sit back at the back table with the teacher, and based off of how well you were doing. You would have like three or four other students who would go around and you would read like a couple of pages a piece to see how well you were like improving. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there would be like the kids in the like, I mean, I guess a a lesser uh, advanced group would then go. And, you know, that's what how it would go during reading time. But meanwhile, you would be sitting at your desk reading and preparing before you go back to show your teacher how you how well you read. Um, So it's a it's a very different thing. That way the teacher could have more of a one um, a one on well, not necessarily a one on one, but a small group approach to really hearing your uh, progress as a reader. And I remember as being uh, being a younger child and like getting to go and read up with classes, like because when I was in kindergarten, I got to read up with first grade, and in first grade, I read with second grade. Um, and you know, phonics was something that I used. The hooked on phonics was you know my jam back in the day. I had my little cassette <laughs> player and my little flashcards and my little headphones. And so I, I, I buy that, you know, the, the thought that if a kid really wants to learn to read, they'll do it. But then you also have to realize that their kids are not going to be motivated necessarily in reading, especially in this day and age where you have so much things to entice you, like the iPad and the games and all the different cartoons and, you know, the things that really draw the attention of children. So unless like parents are cutting down screen time and they're not, and they're actually focusing at home on the reading, the kid will get left behind. And so if you're saying, Oh, go read out on a rug, a kid may not even know a couple, know any words at all to read because they've spent their whole time, like, you know, looking at inappropriate things or spending their time, you know, reading or I mean watching cartoons when they you know could have been practicing reading at home uh is something that you know you have to do at home as well as in the classroom but if the teacher isn't even doing their job it makes it more difficult on the parent as well because yes as a parent you're supposed to guide your child and you should be giving them the fundamentals but the teacher is supposed to reinforce it and if the teacher is saying you know just do whatever you want free will they could be undermining what the parent is doing as well you know what I'm saying so it's definitely Definitely. It's it, a, that's the scary thing, and I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad so, that. So kudos you know. to Eric Adams and, and yeah. Ch- uh, Chancellor Banks uh, for making this move. I wish it was a little bit earlier. They should have erased everything that Carranza had done, and Richard Carranza is a former um, school's chancellor under de Blasio, a uh, horrid man, and I wish I had the podcast during that time because I think it would have just been about him. <laughs> but um, I digress. Let's move on to our WTF story. Yay. I can't wait. What is it? Oh, it's an AP story? Yeah, it's it's a story. It's a story. What is it? Okay. Go ahead. An Oklahoma man used pandemic relief funds to have his name cleared of murder. 
Rick Doherty spends most of his days playing with his grandchildren, feeding chickens, and working in the yard where he lives with his son's family. Sounds like an Oklahoma grandpa. It's a jarring change from where he was just several months ago, locked in a cell serving a life prison sentence at a Oklahoma Oklahoma's Joseph Harp Correctional Center in a killing he'd said he didn't commit. After more than two decades behind bars, Doherty had no chance at being released until he used his pandemic relief funds to hire a dogged private investigator. The investigator and his students and students at the Oklahoma Innocence Project at Oklahoma City University, which is dedicated to exonerating wrongful convictions in the state, found inconsistencies in the state's account of the 1997, 1997 cold case killing, and Doherty's conviction was vacated in June by a Sequoia County judge. Now, the 65-year-old says he's enjoying the five-acre property in a quiet neighborhood of well-to-do homes in the rolling forested hills of the Arkansas River Valley outside of Fort Smith. If you're gone for a lot of years, you don't take it for granted anymore, Dorothy said. In Dorothy's case, he said he was railroaded by an overzealous sheriff and state prosecutor eager to solve the killing of 28-year-old Mitchell Nixon. Who, found, who was found beaten to death in 1997. Investigators who reopened the case in 2014 coerced a confession from another man, Rex Robbins, according to Andrea Miller, the legal director of Oklahoma Innocence Project. Robbins, who would plead guilty to manslaughter and Nixon's killing, implicated Dorothy, who at the time was in federal prison on a firearms conviction. Dorothy said he knew he didn't have anything to do with the crime and found paperwork that proved he had been arrested on the day of the killing. I thought I was clear because he, I knew I didn't have any, anything to do with the murder, Dorothy said. But they tried me for it and found me guilty of it. Jurors heard about Robin's confession and testimony from a police informant who said Dorothy had changed bloody clothes at his house the night of the killing, then convicted him on first-degree murder and recommended a sentence of life without parole. After years in prison, while most inmates spent their federal COVID-19 relief check in commissary, Dorothy used his to hire a private investigator, he said. Bobby Stanton had mostly investigated insurance fraud, but he took the case and realized quickly that it was riddled with holes. Wow, that is quite a lot. (laughs) I mean, this guy lost a lot of his life. Thank God for the Innocence Project and the work that they do to, you know, clear the names of so many innocent um, men and women um, who are wrongfully convicted. Um, and and, and this is close to, you know, my hometown. So this is, you know, I guess I've never heard of this guy. That last name is very familiar for back there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'm glad that he's able to, you know, gain his freedom and, I guess thank God also for the stimulus checks. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Like the two things that go together, the two things that stand out was one, the stimulus check part, because we're not for this little boost of money. And it tells you how much like how crazy some convictions and how uh, allegations, how they can keep people locked up um, for a small especially sum of small money, town, yeah. for a small sum of money, especially more so in a small town than I think in a big city, believe it or not. Um, because of some of the things that I've seen while we were out there um, um, and when we go back there. So I definitely see that part. And the other part that just stood out to me was the the stimulus check and then the 2014 coercion of a new witness to say, yeah, it was him. And it goes to show that, like, you know, corruption in Oklahoma is one of the most corrupt states in the in in the union. Um, how far these things can go and how dangerous it can be for... It happens in New York, too. It definitely happens in New York. It definitely happens in New York. Um, how... But I feel like... In, Even to it, elected officials. To elected officials as well. I have yeah. to concede. Yeah, we it do know, you, you know a person. Yeah, we know that guy. And um, it just really is a telling story of how careful you have to be. And while I'm very pro-police, um, I do believe that people need, you know, a full and fair... Uh, investigation of the evidence in front of them and a full and fair accounting of uh, that of their side of the story uh, in order to make these convictions. And, you know, we need more judicial uh, oversight in, in some senses uh, with these criminal cases. Not that, you know, I don't think most of these people are guilty, but I think that we want to make sure we get the right ones. 
Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, this reminds me a lot of, like, the Stephen Avery um, case and the um, whole situation where Candace Owens kind of dissected everything that Netflix did. And, you know, I wasn't convinced with what I heard of what she said. I think, you know what I mean? (laughs) Ultimately. But um, it kind of goes back into that. So thank God for the Innocence Projects and things like that 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 do the good work of trying to, um, you know, right the wrongs wrongs of our justice system. Because not only the police, but sometimes these DAs are overzealous and they are up for election and they just want a conviction so that they can look good or have a better record. And that's why our government should be limited and it should not have overreaching, overarching abilities where it takes away our freedom of speech and our, our, our um, freedom of, or what is it? What is it? Due process. Yeah. That's what, and so I guess that pretty much brings us to our episodes close. And I just want to, Go ahead at this time and ask you to continue to listen, like, rate, review, and subscribe. Oh, you got it.